evening and welcome to Hope Awakens. So glad you've joined us again or for the first time. If you missed last Sunday night's exciting program on Babylon the Great Prostitute, make sure you go to our website, hopeawakens.com.au and look for program number 16 under the catch-up area. It was incredible. John Bradshaw's program tonight is titled, A Place of Safety. But before that, let's go to Gary for some questions. Thank you, Gary. Hi, Rebecca. Great to be with you again this evening and good to be with everybody tonight. It's always great to be able to go to the Bible with John, isn't it? Well, we've got some more great questions tonight. Number one question, how do we know from the Bible that the wine of Babylon is her false doctrines or teaching? That's a good question. You know, when Jesus was asked why his disciples did not follow the teachings or the doctrines of the Jewish leaders, he likened their teachings to new wine, or his teachings to new wine. Notice what he said. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins. Luke 5.37 You know, in the Bible, new wine means pure grape juice. Notice what it says in Isaiah 65 verse 8. As the new wine is found in the cluster, that's the bunch of grapes, and one says, don't destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So you see, intoxicating wine, which means false teachings or false doctrines, as opposed to the pure grape juice. And the Bible predicted, actually, that sadly these would come into the Christian church. Notice what Paul said when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines or teachings of demons. Question number two. John said that the woman of Revelation 12 is God's church and the prostitute on that scarlet-coloured beast is an apostate church. How do we know that? Well, excellent question. The Bible symbolises God's church by a woman. Both in the Old Testament, it's called likened to a woman. Notice what it says in Jeremiah 6.2. I've likened the daughter of Zion, that's Israel, to a lovely and delicate or attractive woman. In the New Testament, the same thing happens. 2 Corinthians 11.2. Paul says, I've betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So you see, then a prostitute would be a church that's not following God and his word which is exactly what the Bible says. Notice what James said to people who were not following God. James 4.4 You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? In other words, people who profess to be God's followers but really love the world and everything in it, they're called adulterers by James there. So I hope that answers your question there. Question number three. I've done something so terrible and have let my family and God down so badly that I don't think God will forgive me. Well, thanks for that honest question. Let me share a story that has really helped me in this space and I believe is going to help you as well. Jacob had lied to his father. He'd stolen the inheritance from his brother and he had to flee from his home because his brother was going to kill him. And lonely and friendless, feeling no doubt that God would never forgive and accept him, he tried to sleep on the cold Middle Eastern earth. And as he slept, God gave him a dream. 
And in that dream, he saw a staircase going from earth to heaven with angels going up and down on it. And at the top, he saw God. And God spoke to him, saying these words. And behold, the Lord God stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you're lying, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth were blessed. Behold, God said, I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I'm going to bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have spoken to you. That's Genesis chapter 28, 13 to 15. What an amazing God. Did you get it? Jacob asked for nothing and out of sheer grace, God forgave him and promised to be with him and keep him and to give him so much, even though he had done such terrible things. You know, when Jesus was with his disciples, he said that that staircase from earth to heaven represented himself. Notice what it says in John chapter 1, 51. Jesus is talking to Nathaniel. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know, Jesus is the way to God. The Bible says, I am the way, the truth and the life. Just come as you are and God will forgive and accept you like he did Jacob in that long ago night under the starry heavens. Well, that's it, Rebecca. Back to you. Thanks, Gary. Keep sending us your questions through our website, hopeawakens.com.au, and Gary or Robbie will answer as many as they can. If we don't answer yours on the program, someone will contact you with an answer. Well, without further ado, let's go straight to John Bradshaw. Our Father in heaven, we come in the name of Jesus, thanking you, appealing to you that we would be led by your Spirit. We're not asking you to send your Spirit, because of course you will. I'm asking you, Lord, to touch our hearts that we would be led. Guide us, please, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Condé Nast magazine earlier this year listed the 10 safest countries in the world. Comes from information gathered by something called the Institute for Economics and Peace, which does an annual ranking of the world's safest countries. With help from something called the Economist, wait a moment, I don't think that's right, the Economist Intelligence Unit, it ranks 163 countries on, and I'm quoting now, a country's level of negative peace using three domains of peacefulness. I don't know what that is either, but I'm going to tell you what the top 10 countries are. Number 10, safest country in the world, Czech Republic, which is a fabulous place. That's Prague you're looking at, and it's a stunning city. Number nine, Japan, the eighth safest country in the world, at least according to this survey, Slovenia. Then number seven is Singapore. Number six, oh, Canada. Number five, Denmark. Fourth most safe country in the world, Austria. Number three, Portugal. Number two, beautiful New Zealand. And the safest country in a, row, in, in a world, in, in the world for the 12th year in a row, Iceland. This is according to Condé Nast, borrowing data from various organizations. Singapore has been stated to be the world's safest city. Anyone who's been there would see why. Another city often mentioned right up near the top of the list, Tokyo, Japan. 
One of the biggest ideas in the history of psychology is Maslow's hierarchy or pyramid of needs. It was first introduced by Abraham Maslow in the United States in 1943. Excuse me. A mainstay, it is a mainstay of psychological analyses. Abraham Maslow wanted to find out what made life really purposeful. And so he put together this hierarchy of needs. Now, first on the hierarchy is one's physiological needs, then safety needs, then belonging and love needs, then esteem needs, and then at the top of the list, self-actualization. Now, needs lower down in the hierarchy have to be satisfied before needs higher up can be taken care of. So notice this. At the bottom, which is really at the top, those most pressing needs, those that undergird everything else, physiological. You got to be able to eat, drink, be warm, get rest. And then after that, safety needs, security and safety. The way Maslow put it, you need to be safe before you can experience belonging and love, before you can have your esteem needs met, your social needs, your feelings of accomplishment, and before you can achieve self-actualization, achieving your full potential and thriving in creative activities. Now, I don't want to analyze this too deeply. It's a theory, and I'm no psychologist. If you like Maslow, you love it. If you don't, you be a little critical. But I want to point something out. We all know that we have needs. The most basic needs are those related to our survival. You're not going to rate your need to pirouette in a tutu or your need to make a piece of pottery as more important than your need to eat or drink. But that second most fundamental need on the list is for safety. We can relate to that. You know that more than 38,000 people a year die in accidents on the road in the United States. In the United Kingdom, about 27,000 killed or seriously injured. The much lower number is those killed. Uh, in Australia, it's about 1,200 road deaths a year. Although in the 1970s, it was quite incredibly about three times that. So these numbers can come down. Let's switch gears. Heart disease kills about 650,000 people a year in the United States. 170,000 a year in the United Kingdom, about 17,500 a year in Australia, about 50 a day. Okay, now think about the global pandemic right now. You know, we haven't seen people getting locked away or locked down or quarantined for mm, road accidents, even though there's a very good chance you might not make it home safely. There's a one in four chance in Western countries you're going to die of heart disease, but we don't see people panicking or being very fearful about heart disease. See, the numbers by comparison, or should I say this, by comparison, the numbers with COVID-19 have been low. You're not going to find 450,000 Americans die from COVID-19 in 12 months. We don't think. But here's the difference, right? You don't catch a car accident. You've got some degree of control over that. If you go about your life normally, you expect to be okay. You don't catch heart disease. No one worries that you catch heart disease at a playground or end up having a heart attack because someone coughed in your presence. No one wears a mask because of heart disease. The nature of the pandemic has caused fear. People worried about going to work, worried about touching doorknobs, worried about whether or not the person near them was carrying something that they could pass on. It's very hard to feel safe 
when you just don't know if you might pick up a sickness, when, when you don't know if you're coming in contact with a bug. You've had the same experience as me. Walking down a sidewalk, the person walking towards you takes a wide berth because no one's taken any chances. Those pictures that show how far a sneeze can travel, isn't that gross? A lot of people have felt panic-stricken because of the unknown. Why? Because it is hardwired into us to want to be safe. That's why we lock our houses. It's why we lock our cars. And it's an indictment on us as a society that safety is such an issue. Women jogging? Well, you'll often see a female jogger carrying pepper spray or mace, and it's not the bears they're worried about. It's sad. I mean, it's pitiful. Domestic violence is a terrible issue. The vast majority of that is perpetrated against women who should not have to live with that sort of fear, with that sort of concern for their safety. Something is terribly wrong when a person can't feel safe in her own family. Children. Children so often don't feel safe at home. And whereas when I was at a child, I'd tell my mother I was going off to spend the day with whoever it was. Remember what that was like? Mom, I'm off to Joey's house. Be back later. No one was the least bit worried. Of course, it's just not like that anymore. That's a huge shame. When safety goes, innocence goes. Joy often goes. Before 9-11, security at airports was, well, you know what, in all honesty, I don't really remember what it was like. But we know what it's like now. We know there's a great lack of safety, and we've reacted against that. It's brought an enormous financial cost, a truly massive social cost. When you can't be sure you're safe, then you're far less likely to trust. So we want to know we're safe from illnesses. In some parts of the world, people are just starting to wake up from the coronavirus. Societies are starting to lurch back into life. But looking into the future, no one can predict what's going to happen. Will it come again? Should we gather in large groups? When will it be safe to fly again? Let's think of another aspect of safety, though. It's as important as anything I've mentioned. It might be more important. What about spiritual safety? Now, we have these assurances. Look at them. The Bible says in 1 John 4, verse 8, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Jesus made this wonderful invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said of or or to his people in Matthew 23, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, I wanted to keep you safe. I wanted to shelter you. I wanted to protect you. And now this promise, it's fantastic. Proverbs 18, verse 10. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. See what God wants for you? wants you to be safe, to be secure, to know that you have a place of safety in his heart. Jeremiah wrote that the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you.
Now that's safety. But speaking of spiritual safety, what about when it comes to the church? The church really should be a place of spiritual safety. Unfortunately, it doesn't always look like that or work out like that. We know that churches can be a place of spiritual abuse. We know that. I'm not referring to some of the criminal things that have happened in churches. And I don't have any burden here to be critical of churches that have sponsored that because, sadly, sinful acts like that have happened in every church, every denomination. No churches without excuse. That's because churches are made up of people and people are inherently faulty. There's always going to be someone who takes their eyes off Jesus and gets overtaken by sin themselves and then causes harm to others. It's tragic. If you've been through any type of mistreatment at the hands of a church or people at church, then you'll know how it can be devastating, difficult. It can be spiritually ruinous. Can I encourage you? I want to encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Know that people are going to let you down. Some people will do terrible things. It's very important to be forgiving. Forgiveness helps you more than the person you forgive. And I'm not saying that people should be let off the hook or they shouldn't face the consequences of their actions. But don't judge the entire church by the actions of a few or even of the many. I was told by one kind woman that when she and her husband became Christians, they started attending a a church, a congregation. She told me they didn't accept us. They wouldn't include us. They hated us. I said, so what'd you do? She told me the most remarkable thing. They stayed. They hung around. And over the years, and it was years, those walls of resistance started coming down. And then they were accepted and went right along. Another man told me, he said, When I started attending this certain church, nobody liked me. So I decided I would make them like me. And he did, and they did. And the story had a happy ending. But not many people are able to weather a storm like that. Well, I know that someone's thinking, but who says you need to go to a church anyway? Well, very evidently, God does. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 24 And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. And it seems from the context that the writer is referring to the second coming of Jesus as that day. Yes, you should be part of a church to receive and bless and be a blessing to others. We come together in church as family, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's important to worship together and beyond that, to plan together, to work together for the salvation of others. That's very important. I don't know of many armies who fight their battles without the soldiers ever coming together for training, for organization, to help each other, to plan. If you can be there, if you can be there, You ought to be in church. The church is a lighthouse, and that light burns a little less bright when you're not there. When someone feels no need to be in church, it's evident that that person doesn't understand the mission of the church. And remember that Jesus was very clear in Matthew 16. He said, and I say also unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus was clear. I have a church. Now, the word that Jesus used there translates, uh, which translates to Peter, is the Greek word Petros, and it means a stone. Now, it could mean a rock, but not a real big rock. Might mean a rock like something you might dig out of your lawn so the mower doesn't tangle with it. But when Jesus said, upon this rock, he used the Greek word Petra, which means rock, a mass of rock. There's a reason that the ancient city in Jordan is called Petra, and that's because it's carved out of rock, a lot of rock. Jesus told Peter he would establish a church on this rock. I will build my church. Of course, Peter wasn't that rock. In fact, the claim that the church was built on Peter wasn't even made for another 400 years after Jesus said that. And it's well known that when an important church council was held, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, the chair of that meeting, the spokesperson was James, not Peter. The church wasn't built upon Peter. The rock upon which the church is founded is Jesus. Upon this rock, Jesus was saying, I will establish the church upon myself. That's why the Bible says in the Psalms, Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. It says, The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. Jesus is referred to as the chief cornerstone. And if you've ever seen the size of the stones that we used in the making of the temple or the temple mount, you'll know that this is referring to Jesus as a bigger rock than Peter could ever have hoped to be. The idea of church is very biblical. The church was established by Jesus. Jesus said he'd have a church. Paul greeted the church in Caesarea. You read that in Acts. The Bible also says in Acts, and from my leaders, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. He called for them church leaders in Ephesus. He wrote of the church, which is at Sancria in Romans 16. He wrote to the church of God at Corinth. You get the picture. It's all through the New Testament. It's biblical to be part of the church. No question. But of course, that begs another question. Which one? So what do you think the tendency is? The tendency is, of course, to be part of the church you were raised in. If you were raised attending a church. So your parents believe this, your grandparents, and way on back, and that's not altogether bad. Tradition is good. Family loyalty is good. Of course, though, what is good when it comes to church? And if you weren't raised in a church, you might attend the church someone invited you to. Never forget a man who told me, you know, I just realized why I attend the church I attend. He told me he'd been in the military. A friend shared his faith with him. He chose Jesus when he got out in the military. He went back home, joined his friend's church. He said he never really thought about why at the time. It's just what he did. And so what you learn, you accept as being right, right? It's like the values you pick up from your parents. You have good table manners. You don't have good table manners. More than likely, it's what you grew up with. You never gave it another thought. Grow up in a home where there's racism, you probably got a surprise that day that you learned racism isn't acceptable. You grow up eating certain foods, ah, like these, mmm. You grow up loving that, well, you grow up loving that. Wheat picks, Marmite, if you, well, if you don't, well, you know, the thing is, something like Marmite, if 
you grow up loving it. It's a South Pacific thing. Other people who didn't wonder how you can eat it. I know. You grow up in a home where people squeeze the toothpaste tube from wherever. You think that's okay. Why do you think it's any different when it comes to spiritual things? People believe what they believe based on a lot of external factors, how they were raised, values they picked up along the way, your culture, your friend group. But where should your spiritual values come from? Of course, they should come from the Bible. In fact, the Bible itself describes the church like this, 1 Timothy 3. But if I'm delayed, Paul wrote, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. See that? According to the Bible, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. But again, and I'm I'm wanting to level with you here. We likely both know people who go to church where they go because of the style of music, nothing to do with Bible teaching, or because the church got a well-known preacher, nothing to do with Bible teaching. Some people worship where they worship, Because the church is easy to get to. I understand all that, but when you're talking about something as utterly important as how you experience your relationship with God, how you interpret the Bible, man, you've got to look at it right. You've got to base all of that on the Bible, on what the Bible says. And don't think it doesn't matter. You attend a church where the accepted standard is that the dead aren't dead but can appear to you after they depart. You've opened yourself up to major deceptions. Set yourself up to be swept away in earth's last days by false miracles. You've chosen a path against the Bible. You don't want to believe in a secret rapture that will never happen or that God is in reality a tyrant who will burn people forever and ever. That idea makes atheists out of people, drives people away from God altogether. So you see, it matters what you believe. Virtually impossible not to be influenced by false teachings. If your fellowship and worship with the Bible isn't the authority, the results can be devastating. As you look ahead, it seems impossible to imagine that God's people are going to enter into a time of trouble such as never was and be all over the page in what they believe. It's impossible to imagine that. Exactly what that's going to be like now, looking ahead, we don't know. But we can know that before Jesus returns, God's people will be leaning on him and leaning on the Bible like never before. And you don't want to lean on a house of cards. You want to have a solid foundation. You don't want to have misconceptions. You don't want to believe untruths. You know what it's like to have people believe things about you that aren't true. So think with me about what Jesus said. John 10. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Look at what God says about his people when Jesus comes back. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now we look in Revelation 12. It's the story of the church, God's church, down through the ages. Revelation 12, 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. On her head, a garland of 12 stars. In prophecy, a woman is a symbol that represents a church. Pure woman in Revelation 12, impure woman, impure church, Revelation 17. Now, a couple of verses later in Revelation 12, we see the fall of Satan, who drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth, deceived the angels. It says that the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth 
to devour her child as soon as it was born. The devil seeking to destroy Jesus. Six, verse 6 says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. The 1,260 years when the Bible was trampled on, when a fallen church was in charge, when it was difficult to access truth, when people died for their faith in large numbers, when the true church was persecuted. The chapter then recaps the fall of Satan, his eviction from heaven. Then verse 12 says, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time, which reiterates this spiritual battle we're in is not a game. If you've not been taking your faith seriously, you know you really need to. If it seems like life is kicking you around, it might just be that you've never really placed yourself in the arms of God. You've never read your Bible like you were serious about it. You've never recognized this life and death battle we're in. In this chapter that looks in the, at a unique way in the history of the church, of God's followers, ends by saying, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That verse shows us more than one thing. We're in a spiritual battle. Ask yourself, if soldiers in the military approach battles in the same way you're approaching the spiritual battle you're in, what chance would they have? This is very real. The verse shows us how God's people live in earth's last days. Did you notice that? They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. This description in Revelation 12, look at it. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God. Notice. A remnant. Now, that's a part that remains usually at the end of something. It isn't the whole. It's smaller. At the end of time, God's people are described as a remnant. It's that group that remains and is true to God in the end. Man, it's good news. The Bible says God will have a remnant in the close of time, a people who will remain. In the close of time, when the world follows the beast, there'll be a people that remains. When the world goes in many different directions, there's a people that remain. They're staying true to the word of God. And how are they described? The remnant keep the commandments of God. Obeying God is the natural response of having been saved by his grace as Jesus lives in you. It's a surrender to the indwelling presence of Jesus. So it's clear God will have a people before Jesus comes back, keeping the commandments of God. You know, it's a funny old world we live in when you've, you've got people who will argue about whether or not we ought to obey God. Some people won't let their children argue about their commandments. Same people believe in obeying the speed limit, but they will question the necessity of obeying God. Not sure we need to obey God. So let me put it to you in this fashion. When Jesus enters your life, he leads you in paths of right. He changes your heart. He makes you new, guides you in his footsteps. In fact, Paul wrote that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. God has your life. You give him the steering wheel. You follow where he leads you. And God is going to lead you in obedience. He will do that in your life. And where it says God's people keep the commandments of God, how many do you think they obey? There are 10 of them. So God's people would be willing to follow, of course, all 10. And if, like me, you had a realization one day that, whoa, I, I'm not keeping one of them, not even trying, 
you look at why that's the case. For me, it clearly wasn't that the Bible taught me I should obey only nine commandments. It was that my family did it in a certain way. My friends did it in a certain way. My church taught a certain way. I knew I could either follow them or follow Jesus. I decided that the Bible would be the most important thing and I'd follow Jesus. What would you do? What would God's remnant teach in the latter days of Earth's history? You know, I've been asked many times why Martin Luther didn't keep all of the Ten Commandments, why he never taught others to do so. That's because knowledge is progressive. It's a bit like asking why Albert Einstein didn't invent the iPhone. Luther had come out of immense spiritual darkness and he advanced according as God led him. And now it's our turn to do what Thomas Edison did, for example. Stand on the shoulders of those who came before us and gather what they've learned. That's what Edison did. Edison improved earlier versions of the light bulb. There'd be no LED bulbs today without what Edison did back then. Edison grew in his understanding, stood on the shoulders of others. We do the same. We read the messages of the three angels as found in Revelation chapter 14, and we realize some things. We're living in the judgment time. We choose not to receive the mark of the authority of the beast. God is calling us out of spiritual confusion. He's calling us to keep all of his commandments. And God is calling us to embrace the everlasting gospel, remembering that the gospel is the story of how people are saved by God's grace through faith in the blood Jesus shed when he died on the cross. Revelation 12, 17, again, we'll see something important. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pause Right there. What have we discovered about the remnant so far? They keep the commandments of God. Teach and believe the everlasting gospel. Don't receive the mark of the beast. Okay, we've gone through that. And now the remnant have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Revelation 19.10 that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the same as saying the gift of prophecy. Now, Nostradamus, Gene Dixon, no not prophets, nothing given them by God there. God has said, though, that the gift of prophecy is important. How do you find out when it's real? How do you find it when it's real? First Corinthians 12, God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, secondarily prophets, and so on. Did you notice it's found in the church? God says he sets it up in the church. Just as he gives other gifts, he gives the gift of prophecy. Jesus warned us to watch for false prophets. So you, if you're watching for false prophets, you've got to know that the genuine gift of prophecy would exist. Notice what this verse says. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Now, we know it's fashionable today for people to talk about Jesus in one breath and the next say, we don't obey the law of God. If I went downtown and said people could drive as fast as they want, break any law they want, no one would believe me, but I stand up in church and say God's law doesn't matter, someone's going to call me anointed. God raised up this spiritual gift for a special reason, to prepare his people for something great. Noah was given the gift of prophecy so he could tell people the flood was coming. John the Baptist, so he could prepare people for Jesus. It makes sense for the gift of prophecy to show up 
to prepare people for the second coming of Jesus, to call people to the word of God, to encourage them to surrender. Amos 3.7, surely the Lord would do nothing except he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And God said his remnant in the last days would see this gift in action. They'd see the gift of prophecy in their midst. How did God place this gift in the remnant that keep his commandments? In the 19th century, when people all around the world were starting to think and teach and preach about the return of Jesus Christ, God called a 19-year young woman and blessed her with a special endowment of the Holy Spirit. She shared it with others for over 70 years. Today, there are more than 100 books in her name available in the English language. In fact, she's the most translated female author in the history of modern literature. What she shared with others about Jesus and his word has changed lives around the world. The church she helped to found is in more countries than any other Protestant church on the planet. Her book, Steps to Christ, is the best I know of outside the Bible on the subject of successful Christian living. She wrote about the life of Christ, the parables of Christ, and on many other topics so people could grow in their faith. The ministry of healing, which deals with Being physically and spiritually healthy has been praised as being a hundred years ahead of its time. And although she never graduated high school, although she never even graduated elementary or primary school, distinguished medical experts have spoken highly of her insights. Clive Mackay, former professor of Cornell University, said, whatever may be the religious belief of a reader, he or she cannot help but gain much guidance in a better and healthier way of life from reading the major works of Ellen White. Every modern specialist in nutrition whose life is dedicated to human welfare must be impressed by the writings and leadership of Ellen White. Her ministry has helped thousands of people begin a relationship with Jesus and grow their faith in the Bible. That's what the gift of prophecy is supposed to do. Does it take the place of the Bible? No. Does it make the Bible less important? What would you think after... This many presentations in Hope Awakens. No. Is it like having another Bible? No. She was very clear that her role was to point people to the Bible. People familiar with what she wrote, or let me say it this way, if you become familiar with what she wrote, you'll be blessed. Let me encourage you. Don't just take my word for it. Grab something she's written and read it and see that you'll be blessed. So here's what we see characterizes God's remnant in the last days. This group of people following Jesus according to the Bible, the remnant will keep the commandments of God, believe the gospel, share the everlasting gospel globally, and have the gift of prophecy. Now look at Revelation 18, starting in verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. The earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Very straight message. God's speaking to people who haven't yet made the decision to surrender to him. And notice what he says. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive her plagues. There's a call out of false worship, out of Babylon. It's important. God says, come out of her, my people. 
So God is looking to the world, maybe to you, and he's saying, I love you. I've got a plan for you. I have a place of safety for you. A place of safety, not because all the people are so good they never make mistakes, not because all the leaders only make perfect decisions, but because the message of the Bible is clear and true. The teachings of the Bible are solid. They represent Jesus and will guide you in his way. God says, come out of Babylon. He says, be part of the remnant, keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. He called me to do that once. I'm glad he did. As we consider all of these points we've looked at, we can see there's only one church in the world who meets all of them. And of course, someone's going to say, okay, John, are you saying anyone not in your church is lost? You know me well enough by now to know that I'm not saying that. But here's what I'm saying as clearly and as prayerfully as I can. Jesus is calling you to surrender to him fully. He wants you to be part of the church that's teaching the closest to the Bible that you can find. The Seventh-day Adventist church is a community of faith that is holding to the Bible. While the world is going in one direction and much of Christianity in yet another direction, God has a body that is holding to the Bible and is standing on that word. No, that isn't to say there aren't other believers uh, who, uh, (coughs) excuse me, I've got something right about here. That is not to say that other believers cannot go to heaven when Jesus comes back. But God is calling them too. He's saying, honor me. Grow in your faith. Don't let your traditions come between me and you. Don't follow teachings that aren't true. You're grateful for those who came before you and grew in the light of God's word. Luther and Knox and Calvin and others, if they hadn't, we'd be centuries behind where we are today. God wants you to do what they did, to stand up, to step forward, to follow Jesus' leading, to allow Jesus to remake you and fill you with blessing. You want peace in your heart? It comes from knowing that you and Jesus are on the same wavelength. No peace when you're not fully surrendered. You want to face the future with confidence, knowing Jesus is truly the center of your life knowing you haven't held anything back from him. Jesus is coming back soon. What if you almost surrendered? Notice I've never said, what if you're almost good enough? Because that doesn't come into this. Accept Jesus, he'll give you all the goodness you need. He'll remake you. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I shall bring or must bring. And they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. John 10 and verse 16. God is leading in your life more than you can know. He wants you to spend eternity with him. Well, that was absolutely awesome, wasn't it? You know, the idea of church is much better than most people imagine. And isn't it great to know that God has an end time remnant people and that he actually gives us characteristics to identify the end time remnant church? And thank God he has his sheep, his people in other folds. And he calls them to come out, my people. Well, John wants us to give each one of us tonight the opportunity to make a decision. A decision for Christ about coming out, being part of God's remnant. So right now, we want to get a decision card into your hands. And we're going to do that once again by mobile phone. Here's what I want you to do. Take out your phone right now and text tonight's code word, FRIEND. Now, if you're in Australia, text FRIEND to 0428 833 386. And if you're in New Zealand, text FRIEND 
to 875. Again, if you're in Australia, text FRIEND to 0428 833 386. Or if you're in New Zealand, text FRIEND to 875. Now you're going to get a link from us which will take you to a decision card on your phone where it's going to ask you for some details on how we can connect with you. But at the bottom of the card, you're going to find five questions, which I want to take you through right now. Make your response by ticking the boxes that just come below. So number one, I choose to follow the teachings of Jesus as found in the Bible. Check number one if that's your decision. Number two, out of love for Jesus, I choose to keep all of his commandments, including the seventh day Sabbath. Again, if that's what you decide, check number two. Number three, I want to follow Jesus in baptism or rebaptism. Check number three if that's your decision tonight. Number four, I choose to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth and become part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, God's end-time prophetic remnant movement. Check number four if that's what you want to do for Jesus. Number five, I have some questions that I'd like to discuss. And then you can put what questions you have that you'd like to discuss. Now make sure you put your name, your first name, then your last name and your email address and your phone number so we can help you with the decisions that you've made. And then click submit at the bottom. But before we go back to Rebecca, let's just pray together. Father, thank you so much that you've always had a faithful people down through time. And it's no different in the end of time. And thank you, you have your people scattered all over. But you call them to come out and be part of your great end time prophetic movement. Thank you for the decisions that have been made tonight. For those, Lord, who are still wondering what to do, help them, prompt them to make the right decision for Jesus while we still have time. Bless us now and guide us in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Rebecca, back to you. Gary, that was a wonderful program. I love the thought that the church is built on Christ, the rock of ages, and Satan will not overcome it. Now, to get tonight's study guide, just go to our website, hopeawakens.com.au, and click the free offer link and follow the instructions. Well, that's it for tonight. Thanks for being with us. Our next program, The Final Invitation, is tomorrow night at the regular time of 7.30 p.m. or 7 p.m. Central Australian time. See you then. Music.